1: And running. genius Get
2: this. Welcome.
3: Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. Things. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research,
4: technology. Unbelievable.
3: Without further ado, this is the
5: Naked Scientists. Hello, and welcome to the Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. With me, James Titko. This week, we're talking about tuberculosis. The global response to COVID has slowed progress in fighting this pernicious disease. So what treatments are scientists trialling to keep deaths at a minimum?
3: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk
5: Before Covid, the bacterial infection tuberculosis was the number one infectious disease killer on the planet. Every day, it claims the lives of thousands, with the impact particularly marked in lower-income countries, which account for 80% of the cases. But that doesn't mean that richer countries are off the hook. As people migrate and wars displace refugees, Western countries are seeing a rising trend in new TB cases, particularly of highly drug-resistant forms of the infection. So, this week, we're looking at new ways to combat one of the oldest and most fearsome infections on the planet, beginning with what causes this disease in the first place and how it affects the body. Risa Baguandine went to meet pathologist and world-renowned TB expert Sebastian Lucas, recently retired professor at King's College London, surrounded by specimens from people who have fallen victim to TB at King's College London's Gordon Museum. Tuberculosis
2: is an infection caused by a bacterium called Mycobacterium tuberculosis. It's a very common infection, and we think about 10 million people a year globally fall ill from it, and it has a relatively high mortality. It has been with us for tens of thousands of years. Most people catch it by being breathed over by people who have got active tuberculosis who are excreting the bacteria from their lungs. So every time they breathe out, tens, thousands, millions of tubercle bacilli come out and they're breathed in by another person and it goes into their lungs and starts the process of TB infection.
6: What are the symptoms if someone does contract tuberculosis?
2: It's estimated that if 100 people get infected, 10 will develop disease. And the standard dogma is that half of those will get it within the first five years and the other half might get it later on in their life. The practical point is that a lot of people get infected by tuberculosis and they will have lesions in their lungs and in most cases those lesions will not progress. They will be evident on a chest x-ray later but those people will not have actual disease. The small proportion of people who do develop active disease have an infection focus in the lungs, which enlarges and produces a mass maybe the size of one's thumb or a little bit bigger. And the tubercle bacilli then spread to the local lymph nodes. And from there, they may well spread through any other part of the body.
6: What are the first signs of someone that has tuberculosis?
2: It depends how severe the disease is. The majority of people acquiring tuberculosis for the first time will not know they've actually had it. I, for one, was infected round about the early 1980s, but that only became evident when someone did a chest X-ray some years later and said, oh, you've had old TB there. And I said, really? I was never ill. And that's fairly typical. But if one is ill, the primary features are going to be cough, And then also the systemic features, if the infection spreads, of weight loss and just feeling ill. Coughing up blood comes a lot later. But basically, cough that does not resolve is a very good clue that someone might have tuberculosis. And if they have weight loss as well, that's a very good clue.
6: The initial symptoms are very similar to other diseases. For example, it could be confused with the common seasonal flu or bacteria cause pneumonia. This makes it quite difficult for diagnosis to occur.
2: Absolutely right. Now, to prove tuberculosis properly, you've got to see or identify the organisms. That can be done in coughed-up sputum, and you can stain it and look it under the microscope and see the tubercle bacilli. If a person, therefore, is symptomatic and they have demonstrated bacteria, then that is an absolutely classic, definite case of tuberculosis. But a lot of people can have lung tuberculosis and one is unable to prove the organism because it is simply not there in large enough amounts to identify. The second thing is imaging. Chest x-rays and other sorts of chest imaging are very important in identifying tuberculosis. They will not prove that a lesion is TB, but there will be supportive evidence. And as a result, certainly in high-income countries, a lot of people will be treated as if they did have tuberculosis, but they may not because it was never provable.
6: In that case, if they have TB and we still haven't proved it, it means that they're also capable of transmitting it unknowingly.
2: That's an interesting question. Who transmits tuberculosis? We've been talking so far about people who have acquired tuberculosis for the first time, primary tuberculosis. Now, primary tuberculosis does not generally destroy large areas of lung. This point is important because if lung is being destroyed, it generally means that you have an abscess cavity. Air now gets into those cavities and tubercle bacilli love growing in air. So there's a sudden very large rate of producing organisms that you can cough out. The practical point is that younger people don't produce these cavities It's people who have tuberculosis generally later in life who have cavitated. They are the people who infect everyone else.
6: We're surrounded by specimens of previous TB patients. Can you give us a description of how does the disease progress in the body to actually cause the destruction that we're seeing on the specimens?
2: Well, let's first look at this one, which is a lung slice. You can see a two centimeter white mass. And that is a tuberculoma, a mass of t- caseating tuberculosis. This is a primary infection. So that's been breathed in and has produced the tubercle focus there. It's spread a bit locally. It will also have spread to the lymph nodes. And here, one can see from the lymph nodes that it's actually spread to other parts of the body because the rest of the lung has got these little tiny white spots. This is what we call miliary tuberculosis, little tiny seeds of tuberculosis, which has come through the bloodstream via the lymph nodes. And this similar specimen here, which is a spleen from a child, it is covered in little white millary spots. So that child has had primary tuberculosis in the lung. It hasn't healed and has actually spread to other parts of the body kidney, liver, and the bone marrow. Another place that tuberculosis can go to very readily is the brain. And here they've gone to the brain covering, the meninges. These are the membranes around the brain and the spinal cord. And if you look at the base of the brain there, it looks like rather murky because it's covered in an exudate of custody material, which is tuberculous inflammation. You can see the whole spinal cord is covered in yellow orangey material and that is a very severe example of tuberculous meningitis. The next specimen, we're looking at a lung here of which the upper part is completely destroyed. And you see these cavities. The important thing is the tubercle bacilli inside these cavities grow like mad, go into the bronchi, and being coughed up all the time. So that person with lungs like that until he died was chronically infecting other people all the time.
6: Is it possible that without being treated, people actually die of tuberculosis?
2: In these cases, yes, because we know the dates when these specimens were acquired, which was before effective anti-GB therapy came in, which was just after the Second World War and so these are historical examples of untreated tuberculosis and the patient with the tuberculous meningitis died of acute hydrocephalus the patient with the cavitating tuberculosis here died of lung failure and the child with the splenic millary tuberculosis given that that will be affecting all other parts of his immune system could well have died of immune failure now with therapy you stop all that The spleen can go back sort of to normal. The brain, the inflammation would certainly decrease and you may be able to rescue the patient. If you look at the destroyed cavitated lung, TB therapy is not going to give you new lung tissue because it doesn't regrow. But if the damage has not been so severe, then that person can carry on living with
5: albeit reduced lung function, but is still alive. Sebastian Lucas there telling us how some of the worst effects of contracting TB can be avoided. These treatments are all we have to tackle TB once someone has become diseased due to the lack of an effective vaccine. As a consequence, the control and elimination of TB is highly dependent on rapid diagnosis. According to the WHO, 1.6 million people died from TB in 2021, many of which will have been due to late or misdiagnosis preventing prompt treatment. With us now is Professor Kirtan Dada, jointly from the University of Cape Town and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Kirtan, thanks very much for joining us. We've heard from Sebastian that there are limitations in diagnosing people with TB. What's the weakest link in the chain at the moment holding up these diagnoses?
4: As has already been outlined, the diagnosis of TB is a huge problem. And there are three key reasons why. Firstly, the public health or case finding strategy for reasons of affordability is inappropriate. And um, by this, I mean patients are expected to self-report when they have symptoms, and we call this passive case finding. Uh, And this is in contradistinction to active case finding where healthcare workers or diagnostics are taken out of the laboratories and healthcare facilities into the community. However, with the passive case finding strategy, in a way, the horse has already bolted because considerable TB transmission would have occurred before the diagnosis is made. As we heard from Sebastian, uh, these are individuals who would be spreading the bacilli. The second weak link in the chain or key reason why diagnosis is problematic is the inability to collect a sputum sample we already heard Sebastian talk about cavities but not all tb patients produce sputum and so getting a sample in about a third of patients is a problem and this is because tb is either outside the lung we call that extrapulmonary tb uh, and second that somebody may not be producing sputum as such and then thirdly suboptimal diagnostic tools and he alluded to smear microscopy, where one looks down the microscope to identify the bug in, for example, a sputum sample. But that only detects about 50% of TB. We have DNA-based tests, but these only pick up roughly about 80% of TB. And one can also grow the bug in the lab. But this takes many, many weeks. It's also quite expensive. So the problems are
5: extensive and numerous. Um What are the most promising avenues to sorting this problem out? How do we get people diagnosed more quickly so they can get the treatment they need?
4: Well, I think, again, going back to the three points I mentioned, the first thing is that we need to take diagnostics uh, out into the community. And uh, we've been doing research where we've developed a model where we take these DNA-based diagnostic tests. These are portable diagnostic tests And we take this in a mini mobile clinic and um, it's manned by two healthcare workers. And so we go out into the community to diagnose cases on site. We call that point of care diagnosis. We also doing other research where we've developed or are developing through the research teams at the University of Cape Town and the London School sputum independent tests. And uh, one of the tests we're working on is a protein based test this we we discovered this using a mass spectroscopy approach we can use for example a simple lateral flow assay using urine for example to rapidly screen for somebody in the community that has tb the important point there is that one can rapidly identify individuals who might have tb and so target them for diagnosis and treatment and We've also been doing work where we've developed a more sensitive tool called ERISA-TB for a specific type of TB called extra TB. I spoke about that early on, that's TB outside the lungs. And this is being scaled up through a spin-off company at the University of Cape Town. And we, for example, have managed to improve the diagnostic rate of extra TB from about 30% using conventional tools to about 90%, which makes diagnosis much more accurate, accurate and efficient. So these are some of the examples of how one can make a more efficient and rapid diagnosis of TB.
5: Kirtan, I'm afraid that's where we'll have to leave it. It sounds very promising. That's Kirtan data from the University of Cape Town. Here on The Naked Scientists, we're talking TB. We've been finding out about tuberculosis, how it spreads, who is being impacted and what health professionals can do about it. Now, treatment for TB is not trivial. Because the bacteria often adopt a dormant state in the body for at least some of the time, they are only periodically susceptible to antibiotics, which means that the drugs need to be given over an extended period of time, in some cases over more than six months. We also give a cocktail of drugs to gain rapid control over the infection and reduce the risk of the patient developing an antibiotic-resistant infection. Nevertheless, we are seeing a significant increase in the prevalence of drug-resistant forms of TB, including those dubbed extensively drug-resistant, which, unsurprisingly, can seriously limit therapeutic options. One glimmer of hope on the horizon is a technology that is actually older than antibiotics, but enjoying a renaissance in recent years, phage therapy. This uses viruses that selectively attack bacteria but don't touch human cells as a form of living antibiotic. Graham Hatful at the University of Pittsburgh has been developing this line of treatment for bacteria that are in the same family known as the mycobacteria as human TB. He's optimistic that phage therapy might give us a new weapon to fight TB too, as he explains to Chris Smith.
1: We were contacted first at the very end of 2017 by physicians treating a couple of patients in London that had infections with an organism called Mycobacterium obsessus. They had both had lung transplants and were taking immunosuppressive drugs in order to support the new lungs and got these disseminated infections. We were sent the strains to screen to see if we had any phages which would specifically infect those bacteria, And after much screening, we assembled a cocktail of three phages that were then administered intravenously with some evident clinical benefits, which we were pleased to see. Since then, we've had many, many inquiries as to whether we could do something similar for other patients, because this is a fairly common scenario. And I think that we've now treated or provided phages for treatment of about 40 patients in total.
3: And are they all doing well? Does it reliably work?
1: It's mixed, so we've published a report where we summarized the first 20 cases. Of those 20, five we can't really call because other events happened. We don't really, can't really tell one way or the other. In four cases, patients did not obviously benefit, but in 11, we saw favorable clinical or microbiological outcomes, which we took as being promising, especially given that this was a cohort of patients who are extremely sick and literally have no other options.
3: And in practical terms then, how is this actually going to work and, and is it scalable?
1: The first decision that has to be made is what the route of administration is. For most of the cases that we've provided phages for treatment to date have all been by IV injection, typically twice a day, but for extended periods of times, weeks or many months. So the idea with the intravenous administration is that the phages will get into the bloodstream will find their way to the site of the infection and replicate on the bacteria, killing the bacteria as they do so.
3: Do you have any feel for what happens with respect to dormant bacteria, which is ostensibly a big problem with TB. People catch it and may wall it off in their bodies in a viable but dormant state for an extended period of time. Can your phages get at those? Are they like the Heineken equivalent that refreshes parts that other beers can't reach? (laughs) Can they get to these dormant bacteria and wipe them out?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and of course we don't we don't know, but we would love to learn and find out about that. Our view would be that although we don't have good data on that, we're sort of really optimistic about what the possibilities and the options are. Just imagine if you could take your bacteriophages and genetically modify them so that they are decorated with um with with like signalling um, molecules or small peptides that would target the phages, very specifically to where the sites of those bacteria are. And so maybe we could actually design phages so they would specifically go after those guys that hide away in those parts that other beers cannot reach. (laughs)
5: Let's hope so. That was Graham Hatful there. Another approach that scientists are using to try and tackle TB is to explore ways to boost the immune system to better fight off the infection. There are also efforts underway to understand the molecular clockwork that makes TB tick in order to spot vulnerabilities that new antibiotics might be able to exploit. Chris Smith went to see Andreas Floto at the University of Cambridge, where he's doing both.
7: It's a very attractive idea to see if we can find ways to stimulate the host immune system to either more effectively kill the bug at the very beginning or attack it in these walled-off states. And so there's been a lot of interest to try and find ways in which we can target existing pathways within the immune system and stimulate them using drugs and improve the ability of our body to kill these bugs. There are a number of ways in which you can do this, and um, certainly in experimental systems and in preclinical models, these prove very effective.
3: How effective very effective?
7: Okay, so our latest paper, which is uh, currently under review has identified a certain pattern recognition receptor this is a receptor that identifies a certain compound produced by tuberculosis and if you can stimulate that with drugs you can improve killing in mouse models by three log orders so that is to say I'm trying to work out what that is. Yeah, <laughs> About 10, a, thousand, 000,
3: a thousand times fewer thousand bacteria
7: thousand will be left few. afterwards. Yes, exactly. So, certainly, that is not proof that it's clinically effective. But the excitement is there are a lot of drugs that are already in man for other indications, or indeed have been in clinical trials for other indications, that could potentially be repurposed to solve this problem with tuberculosis.
3: Our experience with other types of microorganisms, particularly viruses like HIV, is that you hit them from multiple angles all at once and it has a much better chance of having a positive outcome. You stop the thing evolving or changing or becoming resistant and so on. Is it likely then that we'll couple what you're trying to do
7: with additional antibiotic treatment? So the two main goals of treatment of tuberculosis, one is to make treatment simpler and shorter, And the second one is to tackle these multidrug-resistant organisms. And so in both cases, you can envisage combining these, what are called host-directed therapies, with either conventional or new antibiotics.
3: Have we got any promising leads on the antibiotic front against TB? Because the World Health Organization, I know, are very, very worried, particularly about multi-drug and and extremely, extensively drug-resistant TB at the moment.
7: So there's a lot of efforts, and the number of of... Antibiotics in clinical trials has increased thanks to the efforts of the Gates Foundation and others. So it's very promising. What we've done in our lab is to think about ways in which we can rationally develop new antibiotics. If we can make generating new antibiotics easier by using structure-guided design methods, then it should in theory allow us to just produce as many antibiotics as we need to multiple different targets within the, uh, within the bacteria. So that's very exciting We've recently received funding from the Gates Foundation to understand what are the chemical rules to allow drugs to get into cells. And if we know that, then we can plan strategically how to design drugs that will ensure that they get into the bacteria.
3: I suppose this is a bit like looking at a clock and saying, how does the clock tick? If I can understand the ticking mechanism, I can understand where to throw a spanner to block it up most effectively.
7: That's right. I mean, the challenge with antibiotics is that the vast majority of them have been found in the environment as natural products. And actually, if we try and screen chemicals against bacteria, we end up hitting the same target again and again and again. So as you say, if we understand the problem at a molecular level, we can then say, hold on a second, that gives us a roadmap to how to develop these antibiotics almost at will, which is very exciting.
5: Indeed it is. Andreas Floto. But despite all these scientific steps forward, it's worth bearing in mind that TB rates were declining in developed countries decades before antibiotics and even before scientists had actually even identified the TB bacterium itself. What caused that dramatic decline was not therefore modern medicine, but improvements in living conditions, a sentiment echoed by Anastasia Koch, co-founder of the nonprofit profit AWOZA in South Africa.
7: I think as a scientist, I don't believe that solving an infectious disease like TB is going to come only from a new biomedical intervention. And I think that's quite unusual for a scientist. So I think HIV showed us and then COVID showed us that you can have like really amazing biomedical interventions, like new antibiotics, new vaccines, but if people don't buy into it and you don't get people to trust you or trust the intervention, it's not going to have the intended impact. And I think In order to get people to trust you, you have to also address the social conditions in which the disease occurs. TB occurs within a bunch of other social conditions and those are really important to address as well.
5: And pathologist Sebastian Lucas also emphasises the importance of good quality infection control as probably our best weapon against TB in the near term. The
2: secret to reducing tuberculosis impact globally is to have better surveillance so we can identify people who have tuberculosis, treat them properly, find who they have been with, in other words contact tracing, to see who they might have infected and to do this very efficiently. We always need better drugs, especially because of drug-resistant tuberculosis. We would like to think an effective vaccine is on the horizon. Now we've had BCG vaccination since 1921. This is derived from attenuated tuberculosis or Mycobacterium bovis actually, but unfortunately it is not terribly effective. It seems to have a little bit of an effect on whether a person who is infected actually develops disease, but it doesn't seem to have much effect on whether you actually catch TB in the first place. And so A lot of people have been looking for a long time for a better vaccine and at the moment I'm not aware that there are any good candidates around. And the final point relates to special populations such as those who have active HIV disease because they are particularly susceptible to a very severe form of tuberculosis and has a much higher fatality rate than in people who have not got
5: an immunosuppressive condition like HIV. Sebastian Lucas. And it's worth bearing in mind that just during the time you've been listening to this programme, about 200 people will sadly have died of TB around the world. While it may be an old disease, it's definitely still very much a modern problem. Next week, we're going to be talking about scientific fraud and the scientific reproducibility crisis. When scientists try to repeat what others claim to have found, in many cases they can't. So who is misleading whom? And after that, it's time for a Q&A show. We're warning you early, so you've got plenty of time to get all your science-related questions into chris at nakedscientists.com. Remember, there are no silly questions. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm James Ditko. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.